Welcome to the Eastman Dental Podcast, where we hope to inspire, motivate and provide education from our guests' experience. Joining us on the podcast this week is our inspirational hygienist colleague, Joss Harding. Yeah, I did firefighting and all sorts of things in those initial days of uh, training, part one training down at HMS Rally in, uh, in Cornwall. So, yeah, more than teeth. Joss originally trained in the Royal Navy, working in the UK and around the world for nine years before entering dental practice. She has a keen interest in the management of head and neck cancer patients and shares with us her career journey, as well as giving top tips for the whole dental team when it comes to looking after this patient group. And all the little hints and tips in there for my colleagues, but for them to pass to patients, because it's just getting a hold of easy to read literature that people will go, oh, what a great suggestion. Let me have a go with that. Let me try that. With your hosts, Josh Hudson and Julia Bruin. You wanted to be a hygienist since the age of 15. Now, this isn't really your typical um, career path, perhaps, for a 15-year-old. So perhaps talk us through um, that decision. So we all have to do um, work experience at school. So one of my friends said, oh, well, I'm going to do work experience at the dental practice opposite the school. I was like, oh, that sounds great. Because I, I had no idea what I fancied doing. So I went with her. And I spent a bit of time in the different surgeries. But one particular surgery I spent time in was with Rebecca. And she was the dental hygienist that was there. She'd just completed nine years in the Navy and she did four-handed dentistry as well. So it was interesting. So by the end of my two weeks, I was absolutely hooked, literally. I wanted to be a hygienist in the Rens. That's what I wanted to be. So at 15, I went back to school. My careers advisor didn't even know what the Rens was, which I thought was quite interesting. So she couldn't help me with that. Um, the practice said that when that's, once I'd finished my GCEs, that they would take me on at the, at the practice. So at 16, I'd finished my GCEs, went to the practice and said, I'm ready. And they went, no, we can't take you. We haven't got time to train you. So I was like, oh, crikey. So I went to the careers office and um, I went to say, look, I'd like to be a hygienist in the Rens. How can I do this, please? And at that time, you couldn't go straight in as a hygienist. You had to train as a dental nurse first. Yes, of course. That was um, the case those years ago, wasn't it? Definitely. And um, so they said, oh, yes, yes, we'll put your name down on the list, but go away. It's going to be at least two years. So I thought, crikey, I need to work. So um, I went to work in a legal practice. So I worked as the office junior there, running around getting sandwiches and collecting letters and posting things to the DX, which was like, I mean, that's donkey's years ago now. But it was really interesting because I also worked on reception. So that was like my introduction of working with the public. And all experiences are worth it, aren't they? You know, and so that was interesting. I then went from there to work in the land registry. So I saw the other side of conveyancing so I could understand how um, different certificates were put together, boundaries of properties and all of that jazz. So I had to sew the certificates up and put my little stamp on the end. So lots of little stamps with this number, which I can't remember, um, will be floating around somewhere. <laughs> and then I had a phone call. Jocelyn, are you sitting down? It's like, yes. Um, well, it was from the careers office and they said, well, you've got two weeks notice and you're in. So I was like, oh and, oh, would you like to go ahead? I was like, of course. So um, I went home, told my parents and my dad got in the car and he worked out what a mile and a half was in the car. So it was three goes around the block. So he came running with me every morning, every evening and he was not a runner. So you had to do fitness training as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You had to do a mile and a half within a certain number of And this was part of your sort of interview process, if you like? Well, yes. And you had, you know... Well, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. So you have to be fit. So I was okay. I mean, 
I wasn't really fit, but I was fit enough. But uh, those two weeks running morning and night with my dad, it was just brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so then I started my dental training in the Rens and, um, yeah, I did firefighting and all sorts of things in those initial days of uh, training, part one training down at HMS Rally and, uh, in Cornwall. So, yeah, more than teeth. It was wow. really interesting. So, yeah, two weeks and that was it. I was off on my journey with teeth. And, uh, yeah, that's how it started. So that's interesting. So that hygienist, so was that the kind of military aspect and the hygiene aspect, both of that came from that person? There wasn't, I blame her completely. None of that was there before? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I've met Becky since um, because we had a centenary anniversary of the dental branch in the Rens. And um, Becky, along with many others, came along and I found her. Now, what I obviously didn't remember is that actually Becky's six foot tall. Now, all that time with that work experience, she couldn't have stood up because I'd have remembered that, I'm sure, being five foot one. Um, but it was just interesting. And so I, I connected with her a few times through the last few years because she looked after my parents. Um, but she came to the reunion and I, I said, I blame you completely for how my career has gone because it was you that instigated all of this. I'm sure she's very proud. <laughs> so, how did, so was she... So she was working in practice and in the military at the same time? How did that work? No, she just finished her nine years. Oh, okay. So she'd signed on for nine years, same as I did. You know, now Is that what you had to do? You had to sign on for nine? I mean, nine years sounds like a magical number. Like Isn't it just, you know, at nine years, we were all t- talking to each other in basic training, go, oh, never do nine years at the age of 19. Nine years seemed forever. But actually, when you've got 18 months here or a year there, all these different experiences of different places and people that you work right. with, nine years goes really quick. However, it wasn't nine years you had to do nine years. It was whatever you wanted to do plus and then give 18 months return of service. So if you did 18 months and give 18 months service, then yes, like three years or whatever. But yeah, no. So I signed on for nine and really I could have done a lot more, but I'd had some really good jobs. I'd been very, very lucky. I kind of volunteered for everything, to be fair. And I think... (laughs) Being a civvy first at 19 and joining up was good because I'd had that two years of experience. Um, so whenever anything was offered to me in the Navy, I was like, yep, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that. Some experience was better than others, but it's all experience, you know. I'd worked with some amazing people and um, met, met lots of colleagues. So it's such a small branch, you know, you, you kind of knew after the first few postings that you knew people who knew people, you know. So yeah. it's good and everybody knew the dental team. Because everybody had to see the dentist. <laughs> so tell us, so those nine years, so you were in the UK, abroad, what what was the setup? What kind of happened within those nine years of, of your career? So I started in 87. I did my dental nurse training at HMS Nelson in Portsmouth. I then went from there to Scotland. And while I was in Scotland, I actually got rheumatic fever. So I was due to go from Scotland to Gibraltar. That was put on hold. I was put back to Portsmouth. So I had um, sort of daily reviews, if you like, at the hospital. And um, everybody looked at my chest and, um, you know, listening to my heart, my heart valve. So that gave me another angle on that sort of experience. But I did go out to Gibraltar then. So I went out there as a dental nurse and worked in the hospital department there. So because you looked after the families when you served abroad, you looked after the orthodontics, you did surgery. We went to theatre every week and I loved it. I loved the surgery side of things. That was really interesting. And I had a great boss, uh, Steve Taylor. And I learned so much because from there I went on to do my hygiene training at Old Shot with the Army. And if I'd gone back to doing surgery with what I'd learned on my hygiene course, it would have been even better, you know, but he was a very good teacher and mentor. So that was great. And uh, I came back from Gibraltar 
did my hygiene training at Old Shot. That was only a year, 50 weeks then, you know, yeah. start to finish right at the end. We just got the qualification to give local anaesthetics. So we were whacking them into everybody because <laughs> we need the experience. And um, and then I went from there to um, Collingwood. No, I didn't. I, yes, I did. I went from there to Collingwood. No, I didn't. I went from there to the air station at Yeovilton. Sounds like you've so, been to lots of different places. It was great. Mm. I was very lucky, you know. I got a lot of experience. I then went from Yeovilton to Hong Kong. While I was in Hong Kong, went to Hawaii. So on, I was one of 10 that were chosen to go on exchange in Hawaii. And um, that was great because I worked in lots of different places in Hawaii. So it was lovely being there, obviously. <laughs> Awful. Um, but I had a lot of experience of all surgery there, which I loved. And... Um, there was a pink hospital that had been built out there by one of the benefactors, pink hospital. But there we go. It's huge. And so I saw what they called a two piece of fort, which is maxillary and mandibular osteotomies. Um, so I had a little soapbox because obviously I'm very short. So I had a soapbox <laughs> to stand on and watch all these magnetic screws being screwed in all over the place and see the patient the day after to see how amazing the head and neck is for healing. You know, so yeah. that was great. Came back from Hong Kong. And I went to Collingwood, so that's where I did my last sort of nine months or so and um, had a great time. I mean, I think I probably know the answer to this. I think we probably both do, Josh, don't we? I mean, would you recommend anybody <laughs> going into the services, forces? I um, would. Or, you know, perhaps tell us, I mean, there's going to be some downsides of it. Perhaps tell us some good things and bad things or whether you really would recommend it as a career pathway. It's very different now, you know, the dental branch is much, much smaller than it was and it was small then. Um, I loved it. I was like a person that just wanted to learn more, experience more. And I was very lucky that I had lots of great people on the way that would push me, you know, because it's very easy to get stuck in a rut. But actually, when you're moving around so much, you're, you have no handover generally. You just have to get in the surgery with right. that dental surgeon. And they may have only been there a short while or a long while or they were about to move on. So there was like, getting to grips with things very quickly. Um, downsides, wow. Um, it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so I left in 96. And um, I just, no, I really enjoyed it. My parents enjoyed my career as much as I did. Everywhere I went, they came out to visit. Bonus, so they loved yeah. it. They popped around on different places and they I mean, sometimes people, there so. isn't a downside, is there? But I mean, yeah. I, I just think it's just nice to be a bit realistic about things. And I think we're we're always out here on this podcast to try and, perhaps dispel the myths around um, career choices or to perhaps inspire people to to think slightly outside of the, the normal career pathway. So um, you're obviously doing a, a good job, even though it was all of those years ago and it obviously was a very, very fun time for you. It was great. I made... So you had to make friends quickly. So often you went to a base where you may not know anybody else and people would knock on your door because that's what you kind of did. But if people kept knocking on your door to ask if you were coming out for a drink or whatever, but if you didn't respond and go, then they'd only give you so many chances, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some people aren't mixers, but really to be in the forces, I think you've got to be a mixer. Yeah. And, and the dental branch, we're good communicators. That's what we do. We communicate. So if we don't communicate very well in the dental branch, you, you're not going to get on very well. Yes. Um, well, it does sound as though, you know, when you hear stories of the forces, that people are working jolly hard, but they're also playing hard. And, and that's borne out by what you've just said, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it. It's very lucky. So it sounds like you got lots of different experiences from going through that journey. Um, do you think you got more experience from going down that pathway than if you'd just been in general practice for that time? Absolutely. 
I think because of the different types of dentists and surgeons that I worked with, the specialists, I worked with peri-specialists, orthodontists, um, Max Fax surgeon, I worked with a lot of different people in that nine years. And that was in work. That was great experience. Then outside of work, I um, was winched out of a helicopter onto a boat. I went on submarines, did dental experiences on those, you know, so... I mean, thinking back now to sterilising techniques are very different to these days now. But um, it was um, it's just interesting. You know, it's a learning curve the whole whole nine years, really. I mean, there probably were some bad times, you know. Um, my mum always said that when she didn't hear from me, I was having a good time. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was it was good. It was good. Oh, I feel like we've missed out, Julia, by, <laughs> by not being being in the Navy. Oh, I think we've made our, <laughs> I think we've made our fun. <laughs> that sounds like. An amazing experience, but what ultimately led you to then leave after after nine years and go into general practice? So I left after nine years and um, I'd done all the jobs I wanted to do, do, really. There was only two jobs that I hadn't had and I wanted. One was working in Plymouth and the other one was working with the Royal Marines. And there wasn't really much chance of getting that. Um, I wasn't going to get promoted any more than I had because there was only 20 of us in the branch. So that was the end of my nine years. And I didn't regret leaving at nine years. I'd had a really good time. And those nine years at the beginning seemed like forever away. But actually, those nine nine years went really quickly. Um, So I left and I went to general practice working in devices. And I worked for an ex-REF dentist. So we got on like a house on fire. We knew exactly, you know, somebody said to do something, it was going to happen. So the first day I turned up at the practice, there was a queue all the way around the block. And I was like, crikey, what are they queuing for? You know, is it free bread or something? (laughs) But actually it was a new NHS practice and when word had got about and they were queuing to register for the practice. So I stood at the front door holding onto little dogs and I was keeping the door open so people could go and put their name down on a list. So that was working for Philippa Risley Pritchard. And... It was really interesting because she was clever. She didn't register them all. She registered, took their names for them all, but she registered the first hundred. She would get sort of three quarters of the way through getting those people fairly dentally fit. And then she'd work on the next hundred patients. So she didn't have a sudden influx at just emergencies because that wouldn't be valuable for anybody. So people were aware they'd have to wait and wait quite a while. So eventually when they got on the list and came in to see us, um, they were very appreciative. And it was a really good experience there. I then left Devizes and I came to Gloucestershire and that's where I've been since uh, 1999. And uh, I was pregnant with my son and um, I worked at uh, three practices then. So, yeah, and I've been there ever since. So I've moved around a few practices and I've worked in the hospital. That was more recent. Um, But I've worked in both NHS and private practice. So a bit of experience over the last 23 years it's amazing it's the longest place I've lived anywhere Gloucestershire is a beautiful county part of the Cotswolds and um, yeah lots of uh, really lovely local hygienists and dental therapists so it's been it's been an interesting experience sounds great so how did your clinical practice vary between military to then going into general practice because that sounds as though you've done various different practices so and various jobs in the forces so well, what are the differences there? It must be a different cohort, surely, because yeah, everyone must be so, well, I say so fit, reasonably fit in the military. And then... Well, they can certainly do the one they and a half miles yeah. in whatever time that you said that you had to do it when you uh, started those questions. <laughs> yes, I mean, yes, fit, young, generally under 40, um, 
uh, there was no fees involved you know didn't have to work you could get people as meant back as many times you liked um that was very different when I worked in Civvy Street you yeah, know, but were so. they allowed to come back I mean if you they were not out on you know operation doing something and well they be called were... in for another dental appointment <laughs> yeah you've had somebody to not get told off for coming to lots of well there is that so some people you know they're phobics whether they're in the forces or not you know yeah so you had to kind of coax those people in or they were told they had to turn up because you couldn't have them on a ship or in the middle of a field where they had dental pain so you had medical assistants then who were trained to do dental procedures such as extracting teeth so they used to have to come and do a little bit of training which they hated they didn't mind looking after any other part of the body but they didn't want to do their dental training but they had to they knew that um if you went out on a ship there was generally like a an aircraft carrier that would have a big dental um a big dental um surgery on board and that would look after the different smaller ships of people if they had dental needs they would be put onto the aircraft carrier I mean I joined up before the girls went to sea so this is all that I've been told and learned about yes. never had any direct experience of but while I was in for the nine years it did change so that um I had the choice of going to sea and I chose not to go to sea because then they didn't really have another alternative to my dental role. So I could have been doing all sorts of things, you know, pot washing, whatever, but that's yes. fine. Um, I just chose it. It wasn't for me. So my lovely friends who did go to sea, they loved it. They had a ball. They had a ball. And um, good luck to them because they paved the way for the women now. Because when I was in, if you were homosexual or if you were married, yeah. you know, it was very different times and you were asked to leave. Yes. Um, and so there's... Rightly so, that's been corrected on many scores. So there are lots of women that are doing 22 years, whatever their, their um, whatever way they, they are, you know, it, they're allowed to do their 22 years in the service and that's fantastic. But that's because of women that were in my era and beyond that have made that happen. Yes, so um, I'm very proud of my nine years. Yes. But it was time for me to go and I loved it. So I was very lucky with my nine years um, to have the experience I did. But in Civvy Street, I love it. So I have. So a, they're really different? A much a wider range of age and yeah. um, people with learning difficulties, um, more perio, I would say, cancer patients, um, all sorts of patients from lots of different areas, which I didn't touch on in my nine years. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's all, all learning, you know. And since then, so you've developed this interest in head and neck cancer patients. So can you tell us a little bit more about where that came from? What sparked your interest initially and, and where has that led you to, uh, to where you are now? It's amazing where your life takes you and your career takes you, isn't it? You never, I never imagined in my latter years of my career I'd be doing what I'm doing now. So um, my dad... Um, had a lovely best friend, Terry, and I met Terry probably about 30 odd years ago. And he was a, a person who'd had tongue cancer. And that was the first patient or person I'd heard of who'd had that kind of cancer because, you know, we hear about breast and all sorts of cancers, but head and neck cancer, I hadn't heard of that. So it was interesting to hear about his time with dry mouth and his experiences from his surgery. So that kind of sparked a little bit of interest with products that we had at that time which were very few, to try and help him with his dry mouth. He's still around now. He's 87, you know. Um, 
ailing in health, but he's still here. Um, and so it was interesting with him. And then I was noticing in private practice, I was getting more and more patients coming in, talking about their cancer journey and the effects that the treatment had had on their mouths. And I'd also heard about how they were eating and drinking all of this food and different juices and squashes and pineapple juice and things like that. And I was thinking as a hygienist, oh my goodness, do these professionals that are looking after these people not know what how detrimental this is going to be to their teeth? Oh my goodness, what a journey of learning I've had. So I went to a, a dental show and I was listening to Louise Foster, who's our local restorative specialist in Gloucester Royal. And um, as people do, they ask, are there any questions? And I put my hand up as I do. Can I ask a question, please? <laughs> How can I look after these patients when they come back to me and practice? And they sort of, she sort of said, um, well, it, it, the information's all out there. The information's out there. And I was thinking, well, it might be out there, but I can't get hold of it. Yeah. So what can I do? So I was driving home with my lovely colleague, Jane, and I said, I've got an idea for a leaflet. Now, anybody who knows me goes, oh, my God, what's she going to do now? So I had this sort of bimbling around in my head. And as I got home, I thought, I'll get in touch with Louise Foster and I'll ask her. I would really like to produce a leaflet with all the products that I know about. And she went, no, I'm going to have to stop you there. Everything's got to be evidence-based. I was like, which at that time I didn't understand. If somebody tells me it's good and it's great, I'll, I'll take their word for it. But now I'm a lot more critical <laughs> because of my extra journey of learning. Um, so uh, she said, but I'm not going to piddle on your bonfire. She said, um, I need you to write an article. So I went back to my boss. Bearing in mind that it took me three goes to pass my English GCSE, as it was then. Um, and my boss, Eva Rosvodoska, said, OK, get on with it and I'll help you. So... I created this um, article. It had a lot in it. The Probe very kindly published it, and they published it over two um, of their publications, so June and July 2016. And that's kind of when things took off. And I have got other friends. I try not to speak to them too often because they come up with all these ideas. So my friend Nikki said, well, now you're writing. People want to hear you speak. I was like, uh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And then she said, and they're going to want to know about you, so you're going to have to have a website. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. But, yeah, so one summer I created the website. I mean, I, this is this is techie stuff. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So I did the website, mouthcarefcancerpatients.co.uk. I thought I'd put the resources on there that I knew that I had. And I'd put the leaflet on there that I created because obviously I did create a leaflet with the help of Brush Up UK, which was an amazing charity. And all the little hints and tips in there for my colleagues, but for them to pass to patients, because it's just getting a hold of easy to read literature that people will go, oh, what a great suggestion. Let me have a go with that. Let me try that. Because with patients going on their cancer journey, they will be eating and drinking different things. And as good as they were before their journey, they won't necessarily be good whilst they're in their journey and I think we're, we're talking about all sorts of people with cancer aren't we I mean I think we we need to make that quite clear don't we because I think traditionally obviously your interest has been in head and neck but actually we've got to remember that you know one in three of our patients well it's the statistics are greater than that now aren't they are going to have some brush with cancer so I think what you're doing is is a phenomenal thing um, to do for every patient, not just people with head and neck um, things. So perhaps sort of 
taking a sideward step on that, now that I've just interrupted you, for which I apologise. If you take yourself back to your first ever cancer patient, do you think we're seeing the same things? Do you think we're seeing very different things? What what do you think we're now seeing in our patients who present for dental treatment um, who have cancer? So... Back in the day, potentially it was chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery. Now we've got different options of proton beam therapy. There's um, there's immunotherapy. There's so many different combinations. So what I learned was that there's 200 types of cancer and subtypes. Then you've got 100 types of chemotherapy. And then you've got combinations of. So yes. although one patient might have a breast cancer, They'll be sitting next to somebody else with a breast cancer, but it might not be the same type and it might not be the same uh, mode of um, treatment that they're going to have. Yeah. So their reactions potentially can be different. Some people can go through the treatment with very few um, side effects. Some people have the worst. Sometimes they're short lasting, sometimes they're long lasting. So oral mucositis is a common one, um, but mucositis can affect you from your mouth all the way to your anus. So I went to a conference and I heard a lovely uh, clinical nurse specialist called Sonia Hoy speak. And she was talking about mucositis and what does it actually feel like? So she was explaining it compared to burning your mouth with pizza. So if you imagine you've burnt your mouth with pizza, it's horrible, isn't it? But if you imagine you've burnt your mouth with pizza hundreds and hundreds of times and it's all the way down your system, it goes in different grades. So it can go from grade one to grade four. It's WH go grading. So one is not, not nice, it's uncomfortable, but grade four can be fatal. So you've got that. You've got dry mouth. So can these patients actually clean their mouths? Possibly not. So we think, wow, toothbrushing, they need to be toothbrushing and they're eating and drinking all of those different kinds of foods, you know. But when you're going through treatments about quality of life yeah. and we need to keep up their BMI. So it's not about um, quality of food. It's about amount and it's about calorific So do you amount. think we saw these things all of those years ago, but we just didn't have a name for them? Or do you think that we've... We are genuinely seeing different things because the modalities of treatment have changed and therefore reactions have changed. I think a bit of both, really, to be honest. I can remember my dental nurse that I worked with in um, in Yeovilton. She passed away just after her 21st birthday. But I came back from Hong Kong to see her at the John Radcliffe. And she was literally at the ice cube stage where her mouth was so sore and she couldn't keep anything down. And that I will never forget. Um, but it's about quality of life and keeping these people out of pain and keeping them comfortable. And we're all going to die, but it's about quality of life. So we need to help everybody and um, speak about things and what they like. And if their last drink is a pint of beer or a sip of sherry, then so be it. You know, it's it's about being real. No, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, that's that's an important point to make. Yeah, and there's lots of different aspects to think about. And it's actually a a really big topic. And I know you were saying you were struggling to get the information to start off with. And you've now written your book to the care of the head and neck cancer patients. So what motivated you to write that? Was it because of this inability to get good, easy to follow advice and and information? Or what what led you to decide to take on that? Because it can't have been easy to write a book, I wouldn't imagine. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. It's this has been a journey. You know, this is a lockdown idea. Oh, my goodness. See, (laughs) this is what happens when I have time to to think. Yeah, Um, we've all had lockdown ideas. (laughs) 
Well, I was, I was quite say, happy sat watching TV, but it's, it seems like... Dare I say it, this podcast is one of those. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant idea. So I started in MaxFax in uh, Gloucester Royal Hospital on in January 2020. So obviously, you know, COVID lockdown happened. So I was then speaking to head and neck cancer patients about to start their journey, just had a diagnosis. I'd speaking to patients on the phone with partners who'd had surgery, couldn't speak very well and helping them with a little bit of dental advice and trying to make those bonds with patients I hadn't even met yet because you had quite a few courses to do before I'd actually got into the position. So then May the 13th, I looked back and looked at this. So May the 13th, I was walking to the hospital. So I used to park my car at my friend's house and walk to the hospital. And that gave me a good 10, 15 minutes of thinking time. So I thought, well, you know, I know so much about this journey and I've still got so much more to learn. And my colleagues in my Facebook page that I created for head and neck um, hygienists and therapists also were asking questions amongst ourselves about different parts of the journey. And I thought, well, why don't we just get together and create a pamphlet? And it was going to be a pamphlet of 15 topics because we thought 15 topics would be a good start. And everybody's going to pick a topic and it was going to be in PDF form and we'd just bounce it around so that it would get updated, you know. So that was the start. And then it kind of got, legs this idea and my lovely boss at the time over Rosford Oscar um, she said this is a really good idea I'm going to pass you to Dr Janine Brooks so this lady has published many books and is yeah, very say, powerful yeah with um, special care and her are two names that you know with two things that go together aren't they yeah special care and her Mm-hmm. And so I emailed her, hello, Dr. Brooks, I have this idea, what do you think? And she said, it's a fantastic idea. I'm going to connect you with Wiley. So I was like, oh, my goodness, this really has got legs now. <laughs> so then um, Wiley, yes, very interested. Uh, they wanted you to fill out a form, which they then... Uh, Wiley, Wiley, just for those listeners who might not know, oh, publishers. Publishers, yes. Yeah. So they deal with um, veterinary, medical, dental books generally. and yeah, well-established um, and... oh. Well thought after. Absolutely. So this was starting to get real legs now. And I was getting a bit scared because this is a girl who took three goes to get an English O level. Anyway, so off the form went and um, they look at what's out there already to see because they're not going to publish a book that's already out there. So they say to you all, we'll get to you back to you in about six or eight weeks. And um, they came back straight away and said, we are very interested in this um, project. So I was like and they they said are you happy to go ahead and publish this book and I was like uh, yeah okay not having a really good idea about what this all entailed but the 15 topics grew and grew because for every chapter um my colleagues then saw other people that thought it was a good idea and what else do you think should be in yeah. there and it grew and grew and people came on board and I was like I don't want anything too academic I don't want this to be a master's piece I wanted this to be an easy to read book that anybody can pick up and will learn about the different topics that are involved in the journey for a head and neck cancer patient so clearly there's a wonderful book out there for um, clinicians to be reading but let's not think necessarily about the book here perhaps just a few little bits of advice for those newly qualified clinicians who are working out there who are going to be exposed to patients with cancer and and again I'm at great pains to say not necessarily the head and neck ones that are being treated in in hospital settings Um, I'm thinking about this Joe average patient who's coming in with a recent diagnosis so what sort of key points would you um, 
give those clinicians? So I would always say actually train the team because the patient may well ring up the receptionist and say, I've just got a diagnosis. Can I see a dentist? Now, they don't have to see the dentist. They can see a dental hygienist, dental therapist. They can see a dental nurse because they need to have some oral health advice, if nothing else, because they yeah. may well start their journey immediately. And so there may not be time to take out the bad tooth. There may not be time to sort out their perio or anything like that, but at least give them some advice, get them on the right toothbrushing tech regime, you know, offer them different samples of products, um, listen to the patients, see what they feel, see who they've come in with, also ask if they're okay, because it isn't just the patient that's on this journey, it's going to be the whole family, it's going to be everybody that knows that person. So even a patient that comes in and says, I've got a friend that's going on the journey, sort them out with some stuff, you know? So it, yeah. it's support because they like that support. Whether they use any of those products, whether oncology tells them not to use the products, you know, they've got a bag of goodies. It makes them feel cared for and they will come back to you because with their journey, for a lot of my patients, they will be starting to eat and drink fruit juices and things like that because they have a terrible metallic taste from products that they're uh, from their uh, chemotherapy they will have dry mouth they will yes. try anything and everything to get themselves through that journey maybe long lasting maybe short lasting but sort them out the right toothpaste see if it's um, SLS free see if they prefer different flavors because a lot of patients can't get on well with SLS they can't get on well with a um, mint you know just try anything and everything to, and be that connection so they can email you. Because I've had patients email me from hospital say, Joss, my mouth feels horrendous. You know, yeah. um, can't wait to get back and see you. And I'm like, I need you to see me. So this is the problem that we have is that when a patient finishes their journey from oncology, you need to know about their their blood count. I don't know specifics about blood count. I just want to know when they can see me. Now, often a patient will turn up, they're tired. They may turn up during their journey. I don't necessarily know if I can actually put my hands on them, but they're tired, they're fatigued. And for them to come and see you, it's great. So you need to make the most of that time that they've taken to come and see you. So don't turn them away. Give them some advice. You can't necessarily pick up a scaler or instrument or anything like that because you may um, affect their blood count. So this is what needs to happen. We need to have better communication between oncology and dental practices because some patients are on chemo for the rest of their, li their lives. Yes. They're on cycles. I need to know when in their cycle, come and see me, come and see me. It's not a problem. Yeah. I just need to know if I'm doing the right thing at the right time. So there needs to be more communication as more and more patients get in that diagnosis and treatment. We need to know when we can put their hands on them and help them out, you know. But like you say, you don't necessarily have to start picking up lots of equipment. One can listen, one can support and guide with appropriate home care regimes, which actually, frankly, can sometimes be more important than taking a bit of calculus or a bit of stain off somebody's tooth. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. yeah, good point. Thank you. So all of this experience with head and neck cancer led you to be part of the uh, working party. Uh, updating the 2021 government guidelines in the prevention and detection of mouth cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience and how that came about and what you learned from that process? So I think the working party got together in 2019 and I was invited to be part of this by Sarah Murray. And um, it was really interesting, really interesting. So I was sat next to the researchers and I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, 
but it was interesting for them to be talking about the grades of different kind of evidence, which I didn't understand then, but I understand now. I was there with the patient. So I was there to represent dental hygiene and dental therapists, but also to talk about aftercare. I really wanted to get aftercare into this guidance. So the guidance talks about early detection and prevention. Fantastic. It's brilliant. But there was nothing in there in the original or the previous um, guideline about um, aftercare. So I wanted to squeeze some in there. So with the patient, uh, we sat with uh, everybody around the table, amazing people, um, writing on little post-its for different areas that we wanted to pick up on in the guidance. And I was putting on that aftercare, aftercare, aftercare. I know a lot about products and yes, I've been sponsored by some of them at different times, but I didn't want that to put a haze over anything else that we were doing. So the patient there had been on the journey. And when I saw the first bit of the guidance come through, because obviously lockdown and COVID, it slowed most things up. um, There was like one sentence in there. And I have to say, I was a little bit hopping mad because I needed our our colleagues for these patients, when they come back to us, I need them to have guidance Mm -hmm. because... These are going to be high risk for caries, for perio, for all sorts. And we need to know what to do for them. So it's kind of gone from one sentence to a paragraph. So I can see that a massive win. And I would like the next next option of the next um, guidance to have more information in there about aftercare. So, yeah, I was sort of beating the drum a little bit. It was interesting. Nothing the massive with beating the drum. And it sounds like people do listen to your bongos. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you're currently studying an MSc in uh, advanced and specialist healthcare at the University of Kent. What what made you decide to go down that path? What does it involve, and are you going to recommend it to our listeners as a new and exciting project to work on? So, wow, what another journey of learning. So again, another lockdown idea. So I qualified in 1992, it was the CEB then, then upgraded to the diploma. Um, And the master's that they do at Kent is just fantastic because I can go on to that with my diploma. I said to them they'd need to help me an awful lot because I'm not an academic and my husband would kill me for saying that. And and now he'll say... But you are now. I mean, God, I think... um... (laughs) So, yeah, so... I did the interview. They said, absolutely no problem. Um, we'd inv- like to invite you onto the course. So I love this master's particularly because it's not dental therapy, it's not dental hygiene. I wanted something wider because of where my passion is about mouth cancer, head and neck cancer, but also cancer for all patients. So it, there's GPs, there's physios, speech and language therapists, there's secondary school teachers, there's a lady from the water board. There's lots of different people with with a niche to scratch. And it's interesting to see where their research is taking them. Yeah, that does so, sound quite oh, a very group of people doing yeah. it. It's so interesting. So I'm literally coming to the end of my dissertation. Which um, is on what? So it's on the educational experiences of oral hy- of dental hygiene dental therapists working in MaxFax. So I wanted to see what experiences they were. You know, I, I had no experience. My first patient was my first patient. I had my dental hygiene um, education, but I had nothing else to draw on for these patients. And actually, you need to listen. You need to think about the psychology of the patient. You need to know about connecting with other in, other professionals. So yeah. good internet, interprofessional collaborations, mega important. Um, and... And so it was interesting putting this research together and 
I have to say I'm really, really enjoying it. I should have done it a lot earlier. Um, but, you know, finances and family and, you know, things come in the way. It's all about but timing, isn't it? Yeah, life absolutely. is is curious. It and I moves in I lots was, of different directions. Yeah, and I didn't know if I, I could actually do it. I thought I wouldn't be able to do it. But... I was very wrong and I would encourage everybody. Oh, I think that you've, you know. you've, you've got it in there and I think lots of our listeners will be really inspired by your story about that because I think that's that's what this podcast's all about, isn't it? We're exactly. trying to motivate people. We're trying to inspire people and let them know that there are different things out there. And, you know, I know that you've said on occasion, you know, about your English um, qualifications when you were at school, but, you know, that should be no barriers to anybody, should it? No, you surround yourself by good people good mentors, coaches, um, friends who give you ideas, um, you know, all sorts really. So, but people who can boost you and keep you going. And um, I'm certainly very grateful for mine. So there's this whole journey that we've just talked about. There's the, all the work that you're doing with uh, Head and at Cancer Patients and your book and your MSc and a load of other stuff we haven't even had a chance to talk about. But my question is, what's next? What's next for you? Because it seems like even recently you seem to be having all these different ideas that you're pushing forward with. So what's the next thing that we're going to be seeing from you? So I'm a clinical ambassador for the Mouth Cancer Foundation, which a charity I'm super proud to be part of. Um, I would like to see head and neck cancer patients getting free dental treatment because for our patients with other cancers, so particularly potentially you know breast cancer patients may have a prosthetic bosom given to them or you know prosthetic leg and all sorts of things for different cancer treatments they have aftercare our head and neck cancer patients have nothing and their time actually in hospital may be very short and the care of um, specialists may be very short um, but they've lost teeth or they've lost part of their jaw or they've lost their tongue or something like that they need aftercare but they have to pay for it and I think our head and neck cancer patients they need to have that aftercare eight and a half thousand patients nearly nearly eight and a half thousand patients are diagnosed each year so there's a lot of patients that need that aftercare who've had detrimental effects to their mouths and it's about quality of life they talk about food the social aspect of going out for food and eating with just it's complicated they've got incredibly dry mouths or their mouths don't work like they used to um so it's about aftercare so for me that would be the next thing well there's a few things really you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't think we want another lockdown though because goodness knows what might come out of your um, brain ideas with um, all of the things that have come out of the last lockdowns yeah it's 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 been amazing really you get a little idea don't you and I, I say to people... Yeah, they're never little, though, are they? <laughs> <laughs> they kind of grow, grow a little bit because there's a gap. Like the book, 49 chapters, 56 contributors, amazing chapters. There's still chapters in there that I can think of, maybe edition two, um, <laughs> maybe that we can add to it. I, I can think of at least four or five now. Yeah. I could get hold of some people, and some people it's too short a time frame to actually get them into the book, but they've got just as valuable um, space in that book as everybody how, else. How long did it, out of interest, how long did it take you to do the book? I mean, About two and a half years. And I, I mean, I have no concept of how long a book takes. But, no. But no. Is, is, that, is, that a, is that a moderately quick thing? Is that a very slow, a, a wily 
experience with those sorts of things and then come back to you and say, actually, this is quite normal that, or is, was it um, a bit longer than you were expecting it to take? I thought it might take a year. Um, obviously, I had no experience. Wiley are really good. They have lots of editors that are constantly in contact with you. They can be the other side of the world, you know, yeah. so you can tell when they are online and they're asking questions about different chapters and things like that. So, um, yeah, so two and a half years in the end. Um, it was really interesting. Interesting. I don't, I don't doubt for one moment. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank it's you. been a real pleasure Thank having you, for having you on, me. The, on the podcast. It's been Thanks great. It's much. been really inspiring listening to all the things that you've done and uh, the fact that you've believed in yourself and you've proven mm. that if you do believe in yourself, you can go and do all yeah, these things. And There's you know, no if you've to. got an idea like you say, you know, pass it round a few other people, mm. ask them. I mean, it's that's what it's all about. We Everybody's got a little story, a little idea, but I think, you know, a bit of self-belief in there too. So. Yeah, and I, lo- I knocked on a lot of doors. And even if it was a no or, or maybe, then there's another door to go to oh, yeah. because it's not a no-no forever. Perfect. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very, very much. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. We would love to hear your suggestions for future guests. Remember to follow us on social media using hashtag the Eastman Dental Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please rate, share, subscribe and listen out for future episodes. <laughs>